I'll never forget that feeling of inadequacy. I was a youth minister to church while in seminary, and through a series of circumstances, I uh, was called to be the pastor of that church. I was 24 years of age, and I remember that first day, that Monday of the first week, I was the, the pastor and, and moved my few books into the big office they had for the pastor. And I remember sitting down behind that large desk, and I had this thought, what do I do now? What do I do now? Well, thankfully, inexperienced pastors and experienced pastors and churches are not left wondering about what to do. The Bible clearly outlines for us what it means to serve Jesus, what our priorities ought to be as individuals and as families, and what our priorities ought to be as local churches. And I want to show you this in the book of Colossians. So turn there with me. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Before we read, let me just say quickly, missed you last week uh, out preaching a revival. Uh, but I'm thrilled to be back with you. My favorite place to preach is Longview Point Baptist Church. And so, so glad to be back uh, with you um, this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. The Bible says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we just want to say this a privilege to know you. It's a privilege, Lord, to gather as a faith family, to worship you, Lord, to join with the angelic chorus, to sing, holy, holy, holy. Lord, what a joy. Lord, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your love and concern for our lives and for our church. We just ask you to move in our midst. Holy Spirit of God, would you take the word of God and apply it to our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see the timeless truths of Scripture and be moved by those truths and have a heart to apply those truths. Father, would you do that in our midst? Move with power. Lord, I pray that we would leave today knowing we have met with God. We ask and pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as we've journeyed through the book of Colossians, we've seen that this book is in reality a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in around 61-62 AD. We know that Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And during his time in prison, the original church planter named Epaphras had journeyed from Colossae to where Paul was in prison to update him 
concerning the church. And he told them there are some things in this church that were good and encouraging. And he told uh, Paul there are some things in this church that were causes for concern. So in response to this report from Epaphras, Paul writes this letter to address the concerns, to commend the encouraging things he had heard. He's writing this letter uh, to this body of believers in Colossae. And this letter is filled with, with wonderful, wonderful truth. We see earlier on, on in chapter 1 that Paul prays for the believers in Colossae, prays they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he quotes uh, uh, probably was what was a well-known hymn in the first century. We took two sermons to study a great hymn for a great Savior that, that spoke of the, the nature of Christ, who he is, and the work of Christ, what he has done. And then in verse 24, there's a transition where Paul begins to talk about his ministry and, and how God had used him to, to serve the believers in Colossae. Now in Paul, we see a, a pattern for ministry. As Paul discusses what God has called him to do, we see some priorities emerge. And these priorities, I believe, ought to be our priorities. The things that were important to Paul ought to be important to us because... They're important to the heart of God. And I want you to see these three priorities. And, and my goal, or my prayer, is that we would desire to order our lives around these three priorities. And that we would desire to order our church around these three priorities. First of all, I want you to see that Paul desired to embrace the full measure of suffering. Paul desired to embrace the full measure of suffering. Look what Paul says there. In verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my suffering. Stop. That doesn't make much sense, does it? We, we, we rejoice in the good things of life. We rejoice in the victories of life. We rejoice in the blessings of life. But Paul here says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Can you, can you imagine saying that? When I hurt, when I struggle through trials, through tribulations, through valleys, I rejoice. Now, how could Paul say, I rejoice in my sufferings? Well, there are at least three answers to that question. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, first of all, because they were good for the church. His sufferings were for the good of the church. Look what it says there in verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So Paul says, my suffering has been for your benefit. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. So Paul's saying, my suffering, my, my trials, my tribulations have been for your good. So I can rejoice because what I've experienced has been ultimately for your spiritual benefit. Now, Paul suffered a great deal. If you read over in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes through a list of the different things he endured. Shipwrecks, beatings, being stoned and left for dead, going hungry, going thirsty. I mean, you, you name it, Paul experienced it. He went through great physical suffering, but he understood that because of his suffering, the, the suffering he walked through, the gospel went forth. People were able to hear the gospel. These believers in Colossae heard the gospel because of, 
of, God, uh, of Paul's suffering on their behalf. He was willing to go through the suffering so that the gospel might advance. In other words, Paul understood that his hardship was worth it. Something worthy came as a result of his struggling and his suffering. It was worth it. And so Paul could say, I rejoice in my suffering for your good. Because I suffered, you got to hear the gospel, and that's good. Secondly, Paul rejoiced in his sufferings because they were an expected part of his mission. Paul's suffering did not take him by surprise. As a matter of fact, back up with me to Acts chapter 9. In Acts 9, we see the story of Paul encountering the risen Christ. Before he met Christ, he was a persecutor of the church, but he was saved on the road to Damascus and became a great preacher for Christ. And after Paul met Christ and went on into Damascus, the Lord appears to Ananias, a believer in that area, to tell him to go to Paul and tell him some things. And look what the Bible says there in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias' job was to find Paul and say, Paul, glad you're saved. Welcome to the family. Here's the deal. You're going to be used by God to preach the gospel before kings, before the Gentile world, before the Jews. But understand, it's going to mean great suffering for your life. How would you like to hear that message? How would you like if someone knocked on your door and said, Hey, God's going to use you greatly, but it's going to hurt. It's going to be really, really difficult. See, I think Paul was able to rejoice in his sufferings because he knew that suffering was part of the deal. He was expecting it. Look what he says over in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 24, he says, I rejoice my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. I'm suffering for others. I'm suffering for the advancement of the gospel. I'm suffering for the good of the church. In, watch this, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? My suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What he means by that is this. Christ is the head of his body, the church. And if Jesus, the head of the church, was persecuted, if Jesus suffered, then surely his body is going to experience the same type of persecution, the same type of mistreatment, the same type of mockery and malice. It's expected. If they punish Jesus, if they, if they, if they harm Jesus, if they mock Jesus, we should expect that too because we're his body. And the hatred that, that people had for Jesus when he walked on this earth will be extended to his body in the here and now. He writes, uh, Douglas Moo writes, what is lacking, when he says I'm filling up what is lacking Christ's affliction, what is lacking, what needs to be filled up, are the tribulations that are inevitable and necessary as God's kingdom faces the opposition of the kingdom of darkness. You need to understand, that's part of it. If we're part of the body of Christ, we can expect the same treatment Jesus got on the earth, which was mistreatment, suffering. Well, I don't believe that. Well, listen to what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. He writes, If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, in other words, if they call me devil, the devil, which is what people call Jesus on the earth, 
how much more will they malign the members of his household? It should not surprise us when people speak ill of us because they called our Lord, they called the head of the body, they called him the devil. So it shouldn't surprise us when people mock us. Mark 13, 13, Jesus says, You will be hated by all because of my name. When you identify with my name, you will be hated. John 15, verses 18 and 20, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus is clear. Because you're my followers, because you identify with me, you can expect the same mistreatment that I endured when I walked on the earth. I like what William Hendrickson writes. He writes, During Jesus' day, they hated Jesus with insatiable hatred and wanted to add to his afflictions. But since he is no longer physically present on earth, their arrows, which are meant especially for him, strike his followers. It is in that sense that all true believers are in his stead supplying what, as the enemies see it, is lacking in the affliction which Jesus endured. Christ's afflictions overflow toward us. So it's just part of it. If you're part of the body of Christ, you can expect mistreatment just like the head of the body, Jesus Christ received. But here's the good thing, and I believe this is the reason Paul could rejoice. God uses our suffering, he uses the attacks of the enemy to actually spread the gospel. I like what D.E. Garland writes, all human efforts to thwart the spread of the gospel and to browbeat and terrify Christians backfire. Nothing impedes the gospel's advance, and the Christian suffering only results in more and greater victories. And the enemy just doesn't get this. You see some terrible things happening uh, as attacks against Christians in, in Kenya and in Nigeria and in Pakistan. I mean, in today's time, Christians are suffering as as the hatred of the enemy is turned on the followers of Christ. But guess what? Every time Christian suffers, the gospel expands. The early church father, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Every time you kill somebody, the church grows. You, you, can't, you can't stop God's movement in this world, even though people are trying to do that. And so Paul said, I can rejoice. I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm going to just fill up what's lacking. People are going to keep persecuting Christ by persecuting his church, persecuting his body. But I know that as I suffer, God's going to use it to actually do the opposite of what the persecutors want to happen. So Paul could rejoice in his suffering for that reason. There's a third reason that Paul could rejoice in his suffering. His sufferings helped him to know Christ better. And this is important. They helped him to know Christ better. Paul rejoiced in the oneness he sensed as Christ participated with him in his sufferings. I like what Paul says over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. One of my favorite verses. Paul said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Then he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, Paul said, if suffering with Jesus helps me to know Jesus better, then sign me up. I want to suffer. Isn't that amazing? If, if, if suffering helps me to identify more closely with Christ, then I want to suffer. Paul rejoiced that as he suffered, he identified with Jesus and felt a, a oneness with him like never before. Dr. Helen Rosevere was a British medical doctor in the 20th century that served more than 20 years in Zaire, Africa. 
for 12 and a half years, Dr. Rosevere was the only doctor to an area containing more than half a million people. But in 1964, a revolution rocked that country and overwhelmed her and her co-workers. She was thrown into five and a half months of almost unbelievable brutality and torture. On one occasion when she was on the verge of being executed, a 17-year-old student who she had helped came to speak on her defense, and she watched that student savagely beaten as a result. This made her sick, and for a moment she thought that God had forsaken her, even though she didn't, did not doubt his reality. But God stepped in that moment. He overwhelmed her with a sense of his own presence and said something like this, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, the privilege of being identified with me. These are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. As the force of that hit home, the doctor said she was overcome, listen, with a great sense of privilege. Her sense of identification with Christ, of union with him, was elevated by her suffering, and she rejoiced. In other words, through her suffering, she came to know Jesus better. And if our suffering causes us to know Jesus better, it's worth it, right? We should say, I rejoice in my suffering because now I know Christ in a deeper way fuller, more meaningful way. Now here's the application. So how does this apply to me? That Paul was willing to embrace the fullness of suffering for the expansion of the gospel and the glory of God. What does this mean for us? Because in, in, in all reality, the American church knows very little about suffering. We live in a land of religious liberty. That, that religious liberty is quickly eroding. It's happening all around us. And I believe there's coming a time in our lifetime, in our in our day, where we will, we will be punished for identifying with Christ. I don't know what exactly that will look like, but that's, that day's coming. There's going to be a price for standing for Jesus. It's going to happen in your lifetime, my lifetime. But up to this point, we know relatively little suffering for the sake of Jesus, right? We, we just don't experience that. So wait, how does this apply to my life, my family? How does this apply to long viewpoint? Baptist Church. Well, here's what I think it means. I think it means our priority should be to be willing to do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to get the gospel to lost people, to make disciples of all the nations, whatever it takes, we should be willing to do it because it's going to take hardship. It's going to cause us to struggle and hurt and lose things. It's going to be difficult, but our priority, like Paul, should be willing to do whatever it takes. When, when Frank came on staff here, he just came off the field from serving in Africa and he came on staff at our church as our associate pastor. And one of our first staff retreats, he passed out a sheet where he'd written out some of his plans and goals and strategies. And I was looking at that sheet. And on that sheet, he had this written down. Wig take. W-I-G-T-A-K-E. Wig take. To which I asked, Frank, what in the world does that mean? I mean, don't you use spell check. What, wait, what's, going, what's going on here? Wig take. So what's that mean? And Frank said this. Now, I'll never forget it. Frank said it means, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? What's it going to take to fulfill our mission? What's it going to take to make disciples? What's it going to take to reach this area with the gospel? What's it going to take? And our posture should be, whatever it takes, Lord, we're ready. Even if it causes me hardship and struggle 
and I have to go through valleys of suffering. Whatever it takes, God, it's all for you. It's for your glory. It's for your fame. It's for your gospel. Whatever it takes, we are ready. That's the application for Longview Point. Our priority should be to do whatever it takes for the glory of Christ. Let me give you a second priority of Paul's ministry. Not only did he embrace the full measure of suffering, he wanted to explain the full meaning of God's word. Look what the Bible says there in verse 25. He says, of this church, the body of Christ, I was made a minister. According to the stewardship, that word stewardship means house overseer. To oversee a, a house. According to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. So God gave me some responsibility to oversee some things. And my role was to be a minister to the church. And look what he says. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. He's saying my priority, my focus as a minister to the church was to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Literally in the Greek it's, I, I, I desire to make full the word of God. To make full the word of God. To make sure, he's saying to the church of Colossae and all the churches he, he ministered to, to make sure you understand not just parts of the word of God, not just parts of God's plan, but you understand the entire counsel of God. Paul understood that his charge was to fully proclaim the word of God. Now, we can learn from that. We learn from that priority that people need to know the full counsel of God. Not just a part of God's word, but all of God's word so we understand some things better. So let me give you five reasons why we need to know the full counsel of God. Just very quickly. Number one, we need to know the full counsel of God so we can know God's character. A.W. Tozer said, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. In other words, what you think about God determines your values, your thoughts, your actions, your words, everything. And so what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And listen to me, we need to read all of God's word and be exposed to all of God's word so we can have the right thoughts about who God is. So we're not creating God in our image or creating a God that we like, but we're actually worshiping and living for the true God revealed in the Bible. And the only reason, or the only way that you can know what God is really like is by reading the entire counsel of God. Genesis to Revelation. And we need that to understand his character. Secondly, we need it to understand his purposes. God is doing something intentionally in the world. He has a plan. And he has a reason for executing that plan. And he has a reason for the way that he executes that plan. And as we read the Bible, we see what this plan is. God makes it clear to us, and that's good because when we see that plan, instead of doing our own little thing over here, we can get involved in what God's doing for the reason that God's doing it. Sometimes we get so focused on our little corner of life, and we're missing the big picture, right? But when we read the Bible, and we see from Genesis to Revelation how his plan of redemption unfolds for his glory, we see what he's about, and we can be about the same thing. We need that exposure. Third, we need that exposure so we can enter into a relationship with God. The Bible tells us that we need the Lord and how we can know the Lord in a personal way. The Bible tells us how to be saved. If it were not for the Bible, we would be groping in darkness. We would have no clue how to be reconciled to a holy God. 
and how to enjoy a relationship with Him and how to know our sins are forgiven and how to know we're going to heaven when we die. The Bible reveals that to us, and we need the Bible to show us that. We need the whole counsel of God so that we can understand God's expectations. Once you become a believer, what does God want you to do? How does He want you to live? What are His expectations for your life? Is there anything God wants you to do? Is there anything God doesn't want you to do? Well, we see that as we read the entire Word of God. And then, as we're exposed to the entire counsel of God, we can live for God's glory. We can live in a way that actually honors Him. Our life can honor the Lord. So we need the Bible. And, and, and we see this in the Scriptures. Turn to 2 Timothy with me very quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. And he writes, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the Bible, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So he said, as you were exposed to the Bible, Timothy, at a young age, you learn what it means to be saved and how you could be saved. Then look what he says. All Scripture is inspired, literally God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the Bible leads us to faith in Christ, and the Bible, as we understand it in its entirety, helps us understand how to live for Christ, right? So we need to expose ourselves to the Bible. If you look there in your notes, here's the application for Longview Point. Our priority, our priority is to learn and heed the whole counsel of God. Now, everybody has favorite books, favorite passages, favorite emphases in the Bible, and that's okay. But make sure you're not just spending time in that emphasis and not exposing yourself to the entire counsel of God. For example, some people are really into prophecy. And that's great because prophecy is exciting and important and it, it has a function for our lives in the here and now and it's engaging. But some people, all they do is read Daniel and Revelation. There's a lot more of the Bible, folks, right? And you won't understand all that prophecy until you get it in the right context, the entire counsel of God. So we need to expose ourselves, heed, and live out the entire counsel of God. I mean... If you were putting something together, like a toy on Christmas morning, you're like me, mechanically challenged, you need instructions, right? If someone took that instruction book and, and tore it in half and gave me just half of the book, what I put together would look silly. I couldn't do it without the instruction manual. I need, it all, I need the entire thing to get to the right finished product. If, if someone wrote you a love letter, would you want part of it or all of it? Hopefully all of it, it depends on who the person is, but, but you want all of it, right? That You want the entire love letter so you understand how much you are loved. The Bible is an instruction manual. The Bible is a love letter, and we grow in our faith as we expose ourselves to all of it. Now, now let me just say this to you this morning. This is not hyperbole. This is not preacher talk. I'm being, I'm being as transparent and as real as I know how to be right now. You are looking at a different person than the one that stood before you three years ago. 
And you know why? It's because I have built into my life the discipline of reading through the entire counsel of God. Now, three years ago, I read the Bible. I mean, I read one book at a time, kind of slowly worked my way through it. But then I began to implement uh, reading through the entire Bible in a year's time to make sure I was exposed to the entire counsel of God. And I'm telling you, it's changed my life. It really has changed the way I think, changed the way I live, changed my priorities, my values. My, 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 my favorite thing to do is to, is to get in, my, in, in the Bible, get in the Word with a cup of coffee and just expose myself to all of God's Word, not just part all of God's Word. It's changed my life. Paul said, my priority is a minister to the church. If I'm going to be a good steward of what God's called me to do is to fully give you the Word of God, not just part but all of it. And so Paul's priority was to embrace the full measure of suffering, to explain the full meaning of God's word. But third and last, his, his desire, his passion was to exclaim the full message of the gospel. The full message of the gospel. Look what he says back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, he writes, he says, the mystery, part of this word of God I've been proclaiming to you, is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to us. Wait, what is this mystery? Well, whenever you see the word mystery in the New Testament, it's synonymous with the gospel. Wait, how do you know that? Well, hold your place. Turn to Ephesians, right before Philippians, which is right before Colossians. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 19. Ephesians 6, verse 19. Paul says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of what? The gospel. Now, wait, what's the gospel? It's the story that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and if we'll turn from our sins and embrace him by faith, we can be saved and our sins washed away, and we can have a relationship with God. That's the gospel. And he calls it here a mystery. So when you see the word mystery in the New Testament, it's synonymous with the gospel. Now turn back to Colossians. He says here that one of my priorities is to make known that mystery, to preach that mystery. Now, there's several things I want you to see about this message of the gospel. Number one, the gospel is a revealed message. He says there in verse 26, the mystery has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested, now has been made known to his saints. So, in the past ages, Paul says, God was doing something. He had a plan of redemption, and there were some signposts there, but it wasn't exactly clear how it was all going to play out. But now that Jesus Christ has come to earth and died on the cross and rose from the dead, now it's crystal clear what salvation is all about. The gospel is crystal clear. It was a mystery. Now it has been revealed, he says. It's been made known. The gospel is a revealed message. Like what D.E. Garland writes, the mystery is something related to God's purposes which can only be imparted by divine revelation. Humans cannot know or discover this mystery on their own, no matter how clever they might be. For ages, no one, not even generations of faithful Jews, guessed the course that God was heading, although there were signposts along the way. All that God intended to do was quite inconceivable to human minds. The mystery went against all human reason simply because it was above all human reason so in the new testament he writes the mystery refers to a secret once hidden 
but which has now been revealed and understood. We live in the day of manifestation. We live in the day of revelation. It is crystal clear what God is doing in the world and what God has done in the world. The gospel is crystal clear, and aren't you glad we live in that day? Paul's saying that's part of the message I've been proclaiming, that, 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 that God has done something to save ruined sinners. The gospel is a revealed message. If God didn't reveal it, we wouldn't know it. Secondly, the gospel is a message for everyone. Look what he says there in verse 27. He says that the gospel was hidden in past generations, has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So Paul's very clear. This message, this mystery that's been revealed, this gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles too. Now we know it's for Jews because the, it all started in Jerusalem, right? Acts chapter 2. The first church was in Jerusalem among Jews. But the gospel spread outside of Jerusalem into Judea. And it spread from Judea into Samaria. And it spread from Samaria to Hernando, Mississippi. Right? I mean, there was a time you heard the gospel if you're saved. That message has spread to the ends of the earth. And it's not just for Jews, it's for everyone. It's for Gentiles. So by the way, a Gentile is just a non-Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And the gospel's for you. The gospel's for you if you're a Jew. The gospel's for you if you're a Gentile. The gospel is for everyone. And that's the central tenet of the gospel. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul makes this clear, right? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, here it is again, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, here's the mystery, here's the gospel message. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the gospel is for everyone. Which is one of the reasons that, that Christian racist is an oxymoron. You hear what I just said? Christian racist, those two don't go together. Because a Christian is someone that understands, hey, I've been saved, and others can be saved too. Regardless of ethnic background, regardless if they're a Jew or a Gentile or whatever nation they come from, whatever language they speak, the gospel's for them too. And so the idea that we would, that we would shun people because they look different or talk different just does not line up with this passage, does it? The gospel's for everyone. And so Christian races does not go together. If you've got some racism and prejudice in your life, you need to get right with Jesus. It's just that simple. I mean, it's just that simple. Because the gospel's for everyone. Aren't you glad it's for you? And who are you to say, well, it's not for others too? When the Bible is so clear, it's for everyone. That's why the mystery's so great. So this gospel's a message for everyone. 
And that is encouraging. It's, you know that's good news? Because we go all over the world. Asia, Africa, South America, North America, Europe, all over the world. And anywhere we go, we can say with confidence, this message is for you. I don't know what language you speak. I don't, I don't know what your background, but this message is for you. And anyone that walks through the doors of our church, no matter what color they are, no matter what their socioeconomic level is, we can say, this good news is good news for you. The gospel's forever. I've got to move on. I'm running out of time. Next, the gospel's a message of relationship. Oh, this is good. Turn back to Colossians with me, verse 27 of chapter 1. It says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And here it is. Here's, the, here's why the gospel's so good. Here, he says it's rich. The riches of the glory of this message. Here's what it is. Christ in you. The gospel means Christ in you. The implication of you meeting Christ and experiencing Salvation is that Christ now lives in you. I feel like in the Bible Belt, we've reduced salvation to fire insurance from hell. Okay, I, I, I prayed this prayer, I did this thing, and now I don't have to go to hell. And by the way, I'm glad I don't have to go to hell. I'm glad my sins have been forgiven. That's good, but there's so much more to it. Not only have my sins been forgiven and washed away so that I get to go to heaven when I die, but right now, right now, Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Christ lives in me. And if you know him, he lives in you. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. I remember where I was when God taught me this. I was sitting in my pew of my home church. I was either just about to graduate from high school or maybe I was in college, but I was sitting there and my pastor Chris Adams was preaching through the book of Romans. He was in Romans chapter 5. And he said this, and I'd probably heard it before, but for some reason the light just came on. He said, Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not a religion. It's a relationship. And that rocked my world. I thought, that's exactly right. Religion says, if you do all the right stuff, God will accept you. Christianity says, Jesus has done it all. Believe in him, rest in him, and enjoy a relationship with him. That's what Paul says. The reason the gospel is so glorious is because it means Christ living in you. If you are saved, listen, I, I can't even believe I'm saying it. Jesus lives in you. Think about that. The gospel is a message of relationship. Christ in you refers to the personal experience and presence of Christ in the individual lives of all believers. And then last, the gospel is a message of hope. Look at verse 27. He says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. And then he says, the hope of glory. In other words, the fact that Christ lives in you ought to give you hope. Or, or let me say it like this. The fact that Christ lives in you is the guarantee that glory is in your future. Because when, when Christ starts something, he finishes it. Philippians 1.6. 
It is because of the indwelling Christ that we can have the certainty that we will experience final glory. I like what Charles Spurgeon says about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, I love Spurgeon. He writes, Wherefore, comfort yourselves with this word. Christ in you means you in glory, as sure as God lives. There's no question about that. Go your ways and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Let men see who it is that lives in you. Let Jesus speak through your mouth and weep through your eyes and smile through your face. Let him work with your hands and walk within your feet and be tender with your heart. Let him seek sinners through you. Let him comfort saints through you until the day break and the shadows flee away. In other words, Christ in you means something. Let people see that Jesus resides in you. He's on the throne of your heart. Let people see that on a day-to-day basis and let that reality give you hope that glory is in your future. Now, here's the priority for the church. Here's what this means. We see Paul's priority to exclaim the full message of the gospel to everyone everywhere. So our priority is to make this incredible message known to everyone everywhere. That's our priority. Make this incredible message known to everyone everywhere. That's what we are to be about. And listen, if we're not about that as a church, or even as individuals, then what are we doing? True or false? When God saved you, he could have taken you immediately to heaven. True or false? True. Why didn't he do it? I was saved at nine years old. Why didn't he just take me immediately to heaven right then? Well, Ephesians 2.10 says because he has good works created for us to walk in. He has a plan and purpose for our lives. To make his greatness known to everyone everywhere. To share this good news message with everyone everywhere. I've been reading about William Carey, missionary to India. And I'm excited about him right now because I'm getting ready to head to India on a mission trip. And, and um, William Carey was just a shoe cobbler. He lived in England in the late 1700s. And began to just read his Bible, and he was saved and read his Bible in the original languages and began to read the works of Jonathan Edwards. He read the life and diary of David Brainerd, and through that he said, you know what, something's missing here. We have churches in England, and we're meeting together, and we're singing songs, and we're preaching sermons, but there's no one going to tell lost people about this message that we rejoice in every Sunday. They weren't sending out short-term mission teams. They didn't have any international mission board. There was no Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I mean, they just met together and worshipped. No concern with those who lived in foreign lands, who were lost and perishing, never even hearing the name of Jesus. And William Carey read the Bible and said, this is not, this is not, the Bible tells us we're to make this known. And so he left England and went to India, sailed over to India, and, and, and lived among the people of India for the sake of the gospel. Died there. Amazing story. How God used him. Just by reading the Bible, he came to see his priority was to make the good news known to everyone everywhere. Listen to me. Have you come to that place in your life? That God wants to make the good news known to everyone everywhere, including people in your workplace, people in your family, people in your school, people in your neighborhood. God wants to make his good news known. That ought to be a priority of our 
lives. And so, thankfully, there's biblical direction. When a pastor sits down behind a desk and says, what do I do now? <laughs> the Bible's clear what we're to do. Be willing to do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. To expose ourselves and believe and live out the entire counsel of the word of God. And to make the good news known to everyone everywhere. Those are three priorities that ought to guide our lives. 